Turn to Galatians chapter 5 tonight. Freedom certainly is a popular word and part of our nation's fabric. We love to sing about freedom. We love to promote freedom. But you know, freedom means different things to different people. The artist may speak of the freedom to express himself or herself. The politician may speak of freedom of speech or freedom of democracy. The South African nationalist may speak of the freedom from apartheid. The Iraqi may speak of freedom from tyranny, i.e. Saddam Hussein. Back in 1941, President Roosevelt spoke about the four great freedoms, the four universal freedoms that he thought should be everywhere. Freedom of speech, freedom to worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear. Freedom. We want it. We talk about it. But no one is free, truly free, until they come to Christ. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you are indeed free. I love the bumper sticker I saw on a beat-up old Volkswagen bus years ago at a gas station in California. I mean, you think, you look at this guy and you think, this poor guy, he can barely afford to drive or get gas. And he looked, came out of this van grungy and the van sputtered into the pump. And yet this huge bumper sticker on the back that said, without Jesus, you ain't living. I thought, that's cool. This guy has a handle on what true life is, abundant life. Yet, Christianity is perceived by the majority of people as anything but freedom. In fact, it's looked upon as some weight-giving, crushing set of rules and regulations that really is bondage. I mean, I remember hearing the gospel for the first time as a, as a young teenager. When, I mean, I grew up in a religious home, but people were talking about Jesus this and Jesus that. It was the height of the Jesus movement, and I thought, that's the last thing I would want to do or be is one of you. One of you Christians. What a drag. All of your rules and regulations and stipulations. I remember meeting a guy in Israel named Tony who was from England. He was a biology major at Cambridge University. And I witnessed him every day. And all he could say, you know, he loved to party, loved to have fun. He could say, I could never become one of you Christians, mate. He goes, I like to have too much fun. As if God's sole job is to empty one's life of all joy. God forbid that you would actually come to the creator who made you and loves you. It's as if the gospel would say, you know God hates you and has a miserable plan for your life. That's the good news, friend. You want to pray right now? No thanks. That's how it's perceived. What kind of advertisement are you? People who will never come to a church will come to you. You know, some people will go no further than turning on Christian television, God forbid, in some cases at least, to turn and look and see what is displayed, and you think, no wonder they don't like us. It's a sham in so many cases. And then what about your own life? As people look at it, what do they see? A real freedom? 
a real joy and excitement to live? Or do they hear grumbling, griping, complaining, life's a soap opera? Image is everything in, in one sense. Back in the New Testament days, if you were to judge Judaism by looking at people like scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, oh, no one would, would ever want to convert, would they? It didn't start out that way, you know. The Pharisees, it is thought, originated from after the Babylonian captivity. There were a group of Jews called the Hasid, the Hasidim, the ultra-Orthodox, and their mark, their trademark was joy, happiness, freedom. By the time of Christ, they had deteriorated to those who would hold their robes close to their bodies, would shun any non-Jew lest they become defiled with the spiritual cooties that the Gentiles could produce. They were sad, they were sour, they were angry, they were mad, they were legalistic. When I grew up, I watched clergymen, and the church I grew up in, clergymen didn't wear blue jeans or sit on stools, or read from Bibles. <laughs> they did lots of other things but that. So I formed an impression of God and the church based on what I saw. So I thought God must have a long black robe, and he must be really bummed out <laughs> all the time. Because that's what I saw, austerity. Well, I thank God that God has blessed us with resources like M88 Radio. You know, I think if I was a kid and had an outlet like that and got to hear some of the shows like uh, Joey and Jenna in the morning and the music, it would have been a whole different thing for me to latch on to. It would have been a real lifeline for me. I didn't have any of that. Chapter 5 is the good part. Here's why. Two chapters were personal, two chapters were doctrinal, the last two chapters are practical. That's just Paul's style, that's how he wrote letters. He would usually save the real slamming home the point part, the real practical part for the end. And you can always tell the ship because there's a therefore somewhere in the opening line. In other words, all that I said so far, the stuff that I wrote about, I'm bringing to bear here, now, for you, for this application. So, chapter 1 and 2, just by way of review, he was autobiographical. This is me, I'm Paul, I grew up under the law, I'm a Jew, I was saved from that stuff, I was saved by faith in Christ, I became an apostle to the Gentiles, and I've been hassled ever since. I had people come and spy out our liberty when I was in one place, rat on me in another place. Then in chapters 3 and 4, he is very doctrinal. He goes back to their salvation, the Galatians' salvation. And he poses a question. He says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And then that rhetorical question brought him into a long diatribe using the prime example of any Jew, Father Abraham. And Paul, the rabbi, says, let me remind you that the greatest 
example of the Jewish faith, Abraham himself was justified by faith, not by works. And he quotes Habakkuk because he liked that book, The Just Shall Live by Faith. Then he explains the purpose of the law. It was a tutor, a schoolmaster, to point the way to Christ. It's done. It's over. It fulfilled its purpose. Bye-bye law. Now he is very practical. Chapter 5 and 6, what he does is show that a true faith in Jesus Christ will lead somewhere. It won't produce lawlessness. It won't produce license to sin. It won't make a person sloppy in their Christian faith as had been accused by so many other people. You can just hear it, can't you? Oh, Paul, you can't preach that kind of a message. You've got to preach the law. You've got to preach obedience, holiness, do, don't. Oh, why? Because otherwise, those young Christians that you tell just to believe in Jesus Christ, they're going to go off half-cocked, thinking they can do anything they want to do. Paul is saying, no, if it's true faith, it's going to lead to something. You have the freedom to believe, and you have, therefore, the freedom to love. You see, the law said, if you earn your freedom, you will become free. Grace said, someone else, someone else other than you will make you free. Make you free. The law said, if you earn it, you'll be free. The gospel said, somebody, Jesus Christ, will make you free. Now, that's the difference. The law commands, grace enables. The law gives the command, but it doesn't enable you to follow through with it. No power. But grace does what the law cannot do, enables you in a relationship with God by the resources of the Holy Spirit to do what the law demands. Listen to what C.H. McIntosh, an old dead guy whom I love to read, said. The law demands strength from one who has none and curses him if he cannot display it. But the gospel gives strength to one who has none and blesses him in the exhibition of it. I'll say it a, a, another way. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me fly, then gives me wings. With that, let's start chapter 5. Look at verse 1. And notice the transition. Stand fast, therefore. And whenever there's a therefore, you know the rule. Find out what it's there for. He's saying all the stuff that I wrote about for four chapters, now therefore, based on the personal and doctrinal, here's the practical. Stand fast. Don't budge. Stay put. Stand fast in the liberty, the freedom, by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now that's a word picture, in case you didn't pick up on that. Yoke. It pictures an animal, presumably an ox, with a heavy wooden yoke. You know what a yoke is. It was an old steering device. It's like an old steering wheel for an animal to control the animal to plow a field. But if that yoke was 
made out of a thick, dense kind of a wood, that, that ox would be bowed over under the weight of the yoke so that when you remove the yoke, that ox can stand up straight, erect again. He has freedom. That's the word picture. Stand fast in the liberty with which Christ has made you free and don't be caught up, entangled again with a yoke of bondage. But what a, what a good description of legalism. A yoke, a heavy, burdensome yoke. A set of rules, a bunch of regulations designed to make you feel like you have become righteous before God, but, but you can never, ever, ever measure up. It's sort of designed that way. Religion works that way. You never quite get it. You're never quite there. You haven't quite arrived. It's a yoke. It's a bondage. It's heavy. Peter described the law of Moses in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. He said, men and brethren, why are you putting a yoke on the disciples which neither we nor our fathers were ever able to bear? Jesus described it as a yoke. Concerning the Pharisees, he said, they bind heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders. That's legalism. I was thinking of us today going over this passage, and I've gone over this probably 50 or 60 times in the last week, this passage, just reading it over and over again. And I thought of Calvary as a movement. It's a movement of freedom. So many of you, so many of us that have come out of religious backgrounds, burdensome situations, where you never felt you were accepted or quite measured up, you thought God was a certain way only to discover, wow, he's not that way at all. This is so freeing. He accepts me. He loves me. What a heritage we have. I remember the first time I walked into Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa and I sat on the floor. I was most comfortable on the floor. I was a surfer. I, believe it or not, I came in with swimming trunks to church. And nobody said, you can't wear those here. They said, come in. So I wiped the salt off, you know, and pushed the hair back and opened my Bible, and as I looked around, I saw lots of other people like me. I thought, wow, they designed this place after me. <laughs> this is cool. I felt so free. That's all that I knew starting out. But I've watched people in the movement. I've watched them... Not all of them, but some of them get a little smarter, get a little wiser, get a little more education. I'm, listen, I'm not knocking education or putting it down, believe me. I've studied past high school and college. I've gotten a master's degree in theological studies, but I've watched certain people, even in schools of ministry that we've had, learn just enough that they're really dangerous. You know what I mean by that? I've had friends that went to seminary, and for them, they went to cemetery, because by the end, they were dead. 
they started looking and reading this guy and that guy, and they got really angry and legalistic and restrictive. Like a Pharisee. You know how astonished I was when I read that Robert Louis Stevenson once said, I would have gone into the ministry except all of the clergymen I knew looked like undertakers. <laughs> Who wrote that rule? Stand fast in the liberty with which Christ has made you free. Don't go back to bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you. Now, he's saying this with authority. That's how it's crafted. I, Paul, in other words, me, the rabbi, the Jewish guy, the ex-Pharisee, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. Do you hear that? Jesus Christ is absolutely, he says, of no value to you if you are trying to go back under being justified by law, by, by, by religion. Christ is absolutely of no value. Why? Simple. It strips the cross of all its power. It strips the cross. It is an insult to God, an insult to Almighty God to try to earn your way to heaven. It's an insult to him. That's what the cross was all about, saying, you can't do it. I'll do it for you. Now, he speaks of circumcision. I was reading a commentator, and you know, some taters are more common than others, but this commentator <laughs> said something that just sort of struck me. He said, um, Paul is speaking about circumcision, which may seem a trivial point. And I thought, are you kidding? Can you imagine forcing an adult male to be circumcised? Now, I, I'm not going to go into that, okay? <laughs> but there is a passage in, uh, it's in Genesis, and I'm going to take a stab here, around chapter, I believe, I'm just going to guess, around chapter 34, where there's a group of Shechemites that want to live with the Israelites, and the Israelites say, you can do it, but all of your males have to be circumcised. And it says, on the third day when they were in pain, that's three days afterwards, so it's no trivial matter here to so say, if you want to be right with God, you got to go through that. But he's not really speaking of the surgical operation, nor is he speaking of the religious obligation, as much as seeing circumcision as a symbol. It's a symbol of a system. It's When you get circumcised as a Jewish person, you're making a statement. You're saying, I believe in the system. I'm buying into the system. I'm doing this because I believe this system is going to lead me to God. He says, Christ, take it from a Jew, Christ will profit you nothing. Every man who becomes circumcised, I tell you, is a debtor to keep the whole law. For a person back then, keep in mind the context of Galatia, for a person to say, I want to get right with God, okay, you've got to be circumcised. Paul is saying, if you do that, you're saying that Moses is better than Jesus. Acts 15.1, unless you are circumcised according to the tradition of Moses, you can't be saved. 
Paul says, you go do it. You're saying Moses is superior to Christ. It strips God from the power of the cross. Now, people do that today with baptism. Certain of the churches of Christ, certain of the Catholics, certain of the Anglicans make baptism such a huge issue. You're not saved unless you're either sprinkled or immersed or poured on. And it's the same issue as circumcision was to a Jewish person, is baptism. And some make a huge deal out of this. You know what? Honestly, it doesn't matter if you're baptized so often that you grow gills <laughs> and live in the Jordan River. You could be baptized time and time again and still die in sin as a lost person. John Trapp once said, a man may go straight to hell while the baptismal water is still on his face. Because that's outward. And Jesus said to a thief on the cross who had no time to be baptized, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now that's not an excuse for everybody because we're not on crosses dying. We do have the ability to obey Christ, but you're not saved by that. That's an indication that you've been saved. It's an outward sign of an inward change, as was circumcision to a Jewish person. But look at verse 3. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Hear what he's saying? Once you step into that arena, you've got to live there. If you're going to get circumcised, that's the beginning of Jewish law for any child, any male child. If you're going to step into that arena, if you're going to start to live by the law, you've got to live by the law the rest of your life. You can't pick and choose which commandments you want to obey and disobey. I've had lengthy discussions. And I say discussions because the minute they turn into an argument, I walk away. I won't argue with it. Because the Bible says the servant of the Lord is not to quarrel, but be gentle to all. So I try to discuss. Some have come and insisted that we're all worshiping the devil because we don't keep the Sabbath. I say, oh, really? So we're all worshiping the devil. We're, we're not pleasing to God. That's right. The Sabbath is God's law. I'm quick to tell them we have a Saturday night service. Not because we're keeping the Sabbath, but it happens to be on the Sabbath. You're welcome to come. And then I say, let me ask you a question. Do you keep the Sabbath? I do. I always have. I always will. And I said, I bet you're a liar. You say you keep the Sabbath, but I bet you are picking and choosing which commandments of the Sabbath you want to keep and not keep. What do you mean? I said, well, you know, there's not only a Sabbath day. There's a Sabbath year. That's part of the Sabbath law. You read that, didn't you, in Leviticus? What do you mean? Well, I mean that every seventh year you, you don't work for a year. And you care for the poor. And you remit all debts that are due you. And you live off what you've earned for the last six years. Do you do that? Well, no. 
And I presume then you probably don't keep the other part of the Sabbath law, which says there's seven cycles of that. Then there's the Jubilee year, which means all the land you own goes back to its natural owner, its original owner, which would probably, in our case, be the American Indian. Do you do that? No. You don't keep the law. You're not keeping the Sabbath law. Paul is saying you step into the arena of the law, you owe it. You are a debtor to keep all of it, not just certain parts of it. You say, well, God really didn't care about that. He doesn't. Go back and read the end of Second Chronicles sometime. Israel didn't keep the Sabbath year for 490 years, another 70 sabbatical years. God took them into captivity for how many years? 70 years. God is saying, you owe me 70 that's what it was all about, Second Chronicles, to let the land enjoy her Sabbaths. Seventy years of captivity. Verse 4, Paul says, he gets even heavier, you, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Now, be careful. He's not saying if you become a legalistic Christian, it shows that you're just going to hell. He's saying there's two realms, the sphere of grace and there's the sphere of law. Jesus Christ is everything or he's nothing. A true Christian is someone who trusts completely in Christ for salvation. Anyone who doesn't trust completely in Christ is not a Christian. You can't have it both ways. You can't receive Jesus Christ, which makes the statement that you're acknowledging you can't save yourself, and then go out and be circumcised, which claims that you can save yourself because you've entered now into the system of keeping laws. So Paul is saying, which is it? Which sphere are you going to live in? Self-righteousness or Christ's righteousness? Grace or law? Is it going to be Moses or Christ? So you've been estranged from Christ. Think of the insult. Here's God. Picture God. He's got a, his arms loaded with presents. Let's call those presents grace. And he goes, look what I have for you. I have so much I want to give you, so many blessings I want you to receive from me. And you go up to him and you see him holding all those gifts. And you say, whatever. And you walk away. What an insult. Or if you say... Uh, tell you what, uh, I'll pay them off. All those gifts, I promise, I'll pay them off my whole life. Every Christmas, my mom does something that it can only be called pure grace. She gives our family a check, a sizable check. It started when my dad was alive. He gave all of the boys a sizable, sizable, I won't tell you how much, because, well, I just won't. And, I mean, that has helped us over the years to do landscaping, to put down payments on homes, etc. Every Christmas, just here. At the same time, my mother insists that I send her, at best, a Christmas card. Don't send me any gift. Promise me you won't send me any gift this year. So I said, well, I promise. So we sent her a bunch of gifts, one from Nathan, one from Lenya, one from one dog, one from another dog. You know, I wanted to get around it. And she was so angry. I said, Mom, 
just think I gave you a coffee pot, not even a coffee maker, a pot. I gave you a pot, you gave me a check for mmm, mmm, mmm. It's my prerogative, she said. Well, it's my prerogative to give you a pot. No, it's not. Now, what if I were to say, Mom, thanks for that check. I'll pay you back. It would take away her whole joy, her whole premise of giving by grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Notice verse 5, by faith we wait. Not by faith we work. By faith we wait. Here we are, waiting for the future unfolding of our salvation. Heaven, eternal bliss, being with him forever and ever. We're waiting for that. We're not working for that because in the sphere of faith, we receive it. We're waiting for it in the future. And then verse 6, by faith we generate. So verse 5, by faith we wait. Verse 6, by faith we generate something, which is love. Look at verse 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Let me read it to you in the NIV. It's much better, that verse at least. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You know what he's saying? He's saying true faith isn't stagnant. It's not idle. It's productive. It produces fruit. And what's the first in the line of the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Faith without works is dead. The most prominent work produced by faith is love. That's what he's saying. So what really counts isn't works of righteousness. What really counts is faith expressing itself in the sphere of love. Verse 7, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul likens the Christian faith to running a race in an arena. Paul loves sports, by the way. One of his favorite analogies, as you know, was, was the agon, the Greek race. 1 Corinthians, don't you know that all who run in a race run, but only one obtains the prize? Run, that you might win and obtain it. I'm convinced if Paul were alive now, he'd have ESPN locked in. He just used and loved the analogy. And, and here's the point. The Christian faith is active. It's like somebody who's running a race. He's going somewhere. He's making progress. He has a goal in mind. He's not just meandering on the byways of life, being sidetracked by whatever, living by massive ADD here and there and here. He's going somewhere. He's running a race. He has a goal. Does that describe your walk? Your life? Are you running? You know, some Christians can hardly be described as running a race. They're jogging, they're walking, or they're like those runners that, you know, you, you, you round a corner. You can see them out of the corner of your eye as you're turning. They don't think you can see them. As soon as your car gets by, then they start running again. <laughs> Not breaking a sweat. <laughs> you're around the corner, and they start walking again. It's all an act. You like that? You like that in your spiritual walk? 
Some aren't even on the track. Some Christians are in the grandstands. They're like the armchair quarterbacks. All they know how to do is say, boo. I don't like that. Not good. Or cheer and get all excited if some great emotional thing happens. They're not really doing anything. It's all an observance. One sports fan said, sports like baseball, football, basketball, and hockey develop muscles. That's why Americans have the strongest eyes in the world. We love to watch stuff. I know a lot of people that make church a sport. They love to watch it. That's all they do. They don't do anything else. They're not running a race themselves. They're not going toward a goal. And what Paul is saying is you Galatians got off to a great start in this race of faith. But somebody hindered you. Somebody threw in an obstacle that caused you to veer off course. Somebody talked you into being legalistic and circumcision and going back to the law of Moses and this expression of Judaism, getting back to your roots, and it has stagnated you. It's kept you from running the race toward a goal. You ran well. Who hindered you? This persuasion doesn't come from him who calls you. In other words, God isn't behind any of this. You may feel persuaded because a bunch of these nitwit Judaizers have come in and talked you into this ism and that ism. I've watched it with Calvinism. I watch Christians start off with, I love Jesus. I have the freedom to love Jesus. He's so wonderful. Then somebody takes them aside and talks to them. Well, you know, what you've been taught really isn't the truth. There's this tulip theology, and especially the perseverance of the saints. That's really important. I've heard Calvinists say some, and I'm not knocking all Calvinists, the extreme Calvinists, an extreme Calvinist, by the way, is more Calvinistic than John Calvin was, who will say, you don't even know if you're going to get be in heaven until you die. You can't have assurance of your salvation. I had one guy who went so far into the hyper-Calvinism that he came to me and said, I don't even know if I'm saved. I said, well, I do. I know I'm saved. You ran well, man. Who hindered you? This persuasion doesn't come from him who called you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know what leaven is. It's yeast. It, it starts small and spreads till it controls the whole batch. In the Old Testament, leaven was excluded from sacrifices. During Passover, every Jew had to search for seven days the home to take leaven out. It was a symbol of evil because it permeates and controls. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of the Sadducees, which is hypocrisy. It's always used as a symbol of evil. And here it's the spread of false doctrine. Paul is saying, you know, a little error leads to a lot of error. It doesn't stop. Evil is never static. It's active. If you allow false doctrine into your church, into your fellowship, it'll spread. That's why Paul is being so heavy here. Stand fast. Be free. Don't go back to the legalism. If you do, it'll never end. I've watched churches die over allowing kooky, stupid doctrines like Christians can be demon-possessed. And pretty soon the whole church comes together for a service of 
not going through the Bible, not worshiping the Lord, not edifying the saints, but casting a demon of gluttony out, a demon of cigarette smoke out, a demon of overeating out. And, you know, there's always a new demon every week. So pretty soon, Satan is glorified. Satan is the one that everybody's worried about. All the attention goes to the devil and not God. A little leaven can destroy the entire flock. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. Pause for a minute. Think about this. If you preach circumcision, nobody will be offended. Try it. Let's say, let's say, well, imagine it. I'm not going to say try it. Imagine. Let's say you're Jewish. And you go out and tell your friends, I'm Jewish. We circumcise our male children on the eighth day. That's part of our Jewish heritage. It's right out of the Bible. You know what they're going to tell you? Oh, that's wonderful. It's neat that you have maintained that ancient heritage and passed it down to your family. That's great. I'm glad you have your traditions. But if you preach the cross of Christ, you are going to be persecuted. Because the cross of Christ, the gospel, is an offense to human pride. It's an offense to people because it says, you're not good enough. You are under the wrath of God as a natural human being. You need the redemption that can only come through the blood of Jesus Christ on a cross. They're not going to go, oh, how wonderful for you. I remember preaching the cross where I worked in California at a hospital. And one of my colleagues came to me and she said, you know, this whole message of Jesus suffering on a cross, I hate it. It bothers me. One guy dying 2,000 years ago, spilling his blood. You're telling me that's the only way I can get to heaven. Now think of Paul. Mr. Rabbi, Mr. Pharisee, Mr. Jew. Now he's running around the Roman Empire saying, won't get you anywhere. Won't do you any good. Didn't do me any good. It's only by faith in Jesus Christ alone. No wonder he was persecuted. And that persecution could have stopped if Paul would have said, time out, forget it, forget what I said. What I really meant to say is, all you got to do is be circumcised. Oh, okay. That's a wonderful little ritual. But he didn't do that. And any Christian or any preacher who preaches the gospel of grace and faith undiluted is going to have persecution. It's, it's not a... The cross offends people. The cross offends people. But you know what? Let it. Let it. Oh, I don't want to preach the cross. Maybe Let it. I would rather be the friend of God and the enemy of the world than be the friend of the world and the enemy of God. Wouldn't you? Listen. I hope you applaud for that. Listen. If that is the only antidote for the sin of the world, if that's the only hope, if that's the only solution, if the gospel is true, should you be ashamed of it? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul said. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. But it'll offend some people. 
Some people go, yeah, he's right. I need to ask Jesus Christ to be my savior. And they will believe and they will be saved. Paul even gets heavier. And I hope we don't have to close on this verse. We could, we may have to, but I hope we don't. Because he says, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now, he means that literally. Again, listen to the New International Version. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Oh. In other words, hey, you Judaizers, why don't you go all the way and get castrated while you're at it? That's literally what it says. He's saying, listen, you're so zealous to use the knife to circumcise people. Why don't you use it on yourselves and become like a eunuch? Now, why is he bringing that up? He's bringing that up because in the temple of Sibyl there in Asia Minor, that was exactly what the priests did in their zealousy. They became eunuchs. Permanently, they castrated themselves so that there would be no affections toward the female gender. They could escape temptation that way. Now, I know what you're thinking. You read this and you go, did, did Paul just say what really counts is faith expressing itself in love? Is this love? You bet it is. You know who he's loving? The church. He loves the church enough to be a good shepherd, to go up to the wolves and say, you want some of this? I love these sheep enough to protect them, and I'll come at you. That's a good shepherd. You know that? I wish more pastors were shepherds like this. David said, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You know what he meant by that? A staff is what a shepherd would use to gently lead and guide and love the sheep. A rod is what they would use to beat off wolves. Paul was a good shepherd. Jesus was a good shepherd. Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, whitewashed sepulchers. That was incarnate love speaking. He was pushing the wolves away because he loved the sheep. Martin Luther said, a preacher must both be a soldier and a shepherd. He must nourish Defend and teach. He must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and fight. And he also said this. Even if I preach correctly and shepherd the flock with sound doctrine, if I neglect my duty, if I do not warn the sheep against the wolves, what kind of builder would I be if I were to pile up masonry and then stand by while another tears it down? So Paul, the good shepherd, his faith is expressing love for the flock that he's trying to protect. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Aren't you glad we have time for just that verse? <laughs> Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You know why I said that? Because there were those people who said, you preach the gospel of grace and people are going to go hog wild. They'll see it as a license to sin. He's saying, no, no they won't. Because freedom doesn't mean the freedom to indulge. Notice, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Don't use your liberty as an opportunity. See that word opportunity? It's a military term. It means a base of operations from which you lead an offensive. Don't let your liberty become a base of operations 
for self-indulgence to gratify the flesh. We are free from sin. We don't have freedom to sin. The New English Bible puts it this way. You were called to be free men, only don't turn your freedom into license for your lower nature. So, if you're prone to say, Jesus set me free, I can act any way I want to, then you haven't a clue what the New Testament means. And all that will do is lead you into a more dreadful bondage. Many are slaves today in the name of freedom. I can do whatever, and they do whatever they want. And they become slaves to pornography. They become slaves to alcohol. They become slaves to drugs. They become slaves to the plaudits and praise of others. They are in dreadful bondage because they are free to do whatever they want. We're free from the bondage of sin. We're not free to do it. So it doesn't mean indulgence. Neither does it mean the freedom to exploit. Do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There it is again, love. Look at verse 14. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. What's the principle? What is the law summed up by one word? Love. Jesus said, if you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you fulfilled the whole law. I confess to you that whenever I see a policeman on the road, I white-knuckle the steering wheel. I go, uh oh I'm in panic. I think, I did something wrong. I look at my speedometer. You know why I do that? Because in my past, I've been used to looking at the law as something totally negative. Now, it is negative. It says, thou shalt not speed. But the law is there for a reason. The law is there to enable myself and others to get to destination safely. I'm not the only one on the road. I know sometimes I act like it, but I'm not. There are others who they think they're the only ones on the road. We all have to get along. And if I could just see the law as it's there, the parameters are there, not only to keep me from speeding, but to get me safely to my destination and others, I see that it has a positive effect. So, love fulfills the law. It doesn't negate the law. It doesn't ignore the law. Love fulfills the law. And love is the hallmark of the Christian faith. It's the hallmark. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. By the love you have one. Not by your doctrine, not by your emotion, not by your gifts, but by your love. And you know the thing about Christian love? You never run out. It's the ironic thing. You can give it away. You can splash it over everything. You can empty your pockets of all the love you have in your whole being. And the next day you got a whole other load of it. The love of Christ has been shed abroad in our hearts. Use it. Use it. Little Chad was in grade school. 
He wasn't part of the in-group. In fact, the thing about Chad, his mother noticed, is when the kids were walking home from school, he was always behind them. They really didn't accept him. They'd laugh and they'd get along with each other, but Chad was always left out, excluded. Chad came home from school. It was almost Valentine's Day. In a few weeks, it would be. He announced to his mother that he wanted to make Valentine's Day cards for all 35 students in his class by hand. And she thought, oh, I wish he wouldn't, because he probably won't get a single one. It's just going to let him down. He shouldn't do it, but I'll go along with it. They bought supplies for three weeks every night. He made individual cards, 35 of them. It was Valentine's Day. He bolted out the door, excited to give out the cards. His mother knew his heart would be broken that afternoon, so she made special cookies and milk for him, thinking it'll ease the pain. End of the day, she sees Chad coming with the kids, as usual, behind them. They're all in a group together, laughing, having fun. He's alienated. He walks toward the door. He opens the door, closes the door. She's thinking, he probably didn't get many Valentines, maybe not even one. Honey, I've made cookies for you and milk. He didn't say a word. He just walked faster than usual past her. And he said, not a one. Not a one. And he smiled and said, Mom, can you believe it? I didn't forget a single one. I remembered everybody. He was totally consumed with, did I cover everyone? Did I give enough out? Not, did I get any? 